Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, December 20th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of last night's DNC debate. Let's just roll right into that, and this one will be a longer show, but I figure here's a good one to send you off on your pre-holiday weekend. Today's show is all about December's DNC debate, which wrapped up last night more or less on time. Let me give you the big picture as I see it. Overall, the looming backdrop of this whole thing was impeachment. The debate happened roughly 24 hours after the articles of impeachment were approved in the House. Because of this, it was particularly obvious that the debate's context was about Trump versus one of these people. We can assume that voters watching these debates are probably not going to vote for Trump. So the question becomes more about what flavor of candidate you're looking for. Is it somebody moderate? Is it somebody more progressive? Is it somebody old? Somebody young? How about a woman or a man? How about a career politician versus a career business person? You actually did see some options there. Having said that, there was a notable lack of diversity on stage. This was a stage where the majority of people were white men. We're also down to just two women, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. In this debate, we did not start by dealing with healthcare. The issue only came up in the third hour, and it was a relatively small part of the debate overall. This is a big change, and it's worth saying out loud because most of the previous debates have included massive chunks of upfront time about specific policy on things like a public option or Medicare for All. That did happen last night, but only very late in the game. So, how do we frame this debate in terms of a few key narratives or themes? To be honest, I don't think I can. Last time around, I had three key themes. But this time, I think it's more appropriate to talk about the individual candidates and specific debates they got into. And that does give us one big frame, maybe, to examine this event. By having seven candidates on stage, the smallest field so far, we saw some new dynamics. The smaller group didn't materially change the debate style, per se, We've seen three-person pylons before, and we saw some last night, but it seemed to allow the moderators to cover way more ground because you didn't end up with literally 10 or 11 people raising their hands and saying they wanted to throw in their two cents on every single issue. Now, yeah, many of the remaining seven still tried, but the moderators managed to work through a broad range of issues. And in today's recap, I'm only covering some of those because, you know, otherwise you should just go watch the whole debate. That video is linked, by the way, in the show notes. Here's an example of moderators having more space to get into issues. In a tiny detail, we saw Tim Alberta, who's a reporter for Politico, sitting there as a moderator wearing a green puzzle piece on his lapel. This is a somewhat controversial symbol. It is meant to denote autism awareness, but a lot of autistic people object to the use of a puzzle piece as a symbol. Anyway, the symbol is not really the point today. The point is, you had at least two parents of autistic children on that stage, and there was actually room and time to talk about it. Actually having some kind of conversation about this is important, and perhaps the smaller field and or the team of moderators allowed that to happen. Beyond that, we also got into climate change, and the approach there was really smart. It was asking about whether nuclear policy was part of the picture or not. Okay, now why is this a good way to explore climate policy in a debate? Well, because the candidates actually disagree on that part of the issue. 
this is a debate. So, you know, let's hear some candidates make the case for what they think and offer voters actual differences. For what it's worth, four of the seven candidates are in favor of nuclear in some form. Tom Steyer, the only candidate who says climate change is his number one priority, is against it. So go watch the debate if you want to see how that played out. But again, making room for climate change in a DNC debate is important. Okay, so what else can we say broadly? Well, I think this is the moment to address the last question of the night from moderator Judy Woodruff. She offered candidates a choice. Either they could ask forgiveness of someone else on stage or offer someone a gift. She framed it as a question in the spirit of the holidays, but the way I read it was, there is no way these candidates actually spent any time anticipating or rehearsing an answer to this particular question in their debate prep. It's a way to throw them way off their scripted answers and into something, anything, that might come out in the moment in an authentic way. So what happened in response to that question? Well, Andrew Yang got the question first. And he expressed a very human reaction. He was completely surprised by it. And he managed to do something he did all night, which was pivot back to a core campaign message. He ended up offering a gift of his book to the other candidates. That was a funny moment, and it was quickly, perhaps desperately, adopted by other candidates on stage. But the other thing that came up was that both women on stage took that moment to ask forgiveness for being combative. Now, without getting into a whole thing on that, here we are in a debate, which is innately about conflict. It's about differences. And in that context, somehow the two most prominent women Democrats in this race both converged on that answer. It was a notable moment. All right, with that out of the way, let's review some key moments from last night. Okay, we've got to go there. Please enter with me the wine cave. So this started after moderators asked candidates to weigh in on recent remarks by President Obama. Obama had said, basically, the world would be better off if more women were in positions of power. After some discussion of that, Senator Elizabeth Warren gave what was probably her biggest applause line of the night. Listen in. Senator Warren, you would be the oldest president ever inaugurated. I'd like you to weigh in as well. Uh, I'd also be the youngest woman ever inaugurated. (laughs) So good job getting out ahead of the whole age question, which did come up again later. But then she pivoted to something very different in that remaining time. She talked about how candidates choose to run their campaigns and choose to bring in money. She talked about her now-famous selfie lines, where she spends hours having people come up and take a selfie for free. And she contrasted that with big-dollar donors who have been giving to other campaigns, sometimes in the context of paid fundraisers, where you buy a seat at a small event for thousands of dollars. So Mayor Pete Buttigieg jumped in, because clearly these remarks were a continuation of a recent battle between the Warren and Buttigieg campaigns. All right, listen in, and I will interrupt this to give some context. Can't help but feel that might have been directed at me. And here's the thing. We're in the fight of our lives right now. Donald Trump and his allies have made it abundantly clear that they will stop at nothing not even foreign interference to hold on to power. They've already put together 
more than $300 million. This is our chance. This is our only chance to defeat Donald Trump. And we shouldn't try to do it with one hand tied behind our back. The way we're going to win is to bring everybody to our side in this fight. If that means that you're a grad student digging deep to go online to PeteForAmerica.com and chip in 10 bucks, that's great. And if you can drop $1,000 without blinking, that's great too. We need everybody's help in this fight. I'm not going to turn away anyone who wants to help us defeat Donald Trump. We need Democrats who've been with us all along, yes, but we also need independents worried about the direction of the country. If you were a Republican, disgusted with what's going on in your own party, we're not going to agree on everything, but we need you in this fight, and I will welcome you to our side. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Hey, Senator Warren, 45 seconds to respond. So the mayor just recently had a fundraiser that was held in a wine cave full of crystals and served $900 a bottle wine. Um, think about who comes to that. He had promised that every fundraiser he would do would be open door, but this one was closed door. We made the decision many years ago that rich people in smoke-filled rooms would not pick the next president of the United States. Billionaires in wine caves should not pick the next president of the United States. Mr. Mayor, your okay. response. You know, according to Forbes magazine, I am the, literally the only person on this stage who's not a millionaire or a billionaire. So if, this is important. This is the problem with issuing purity tests you cannot yourself pass. If I pledge... Okay, let's take a moment to check on some of the facts there. There is already a whole PolitiFact article about this exchange. So, first data point, does the Trump campaign have $300 million already? The answer is yes. It's somewhat nuanced because of who has the money and whatever, but yeah. Now, it's also true that everybody else on that stage is currently in a primary, not a general election, so it kind of makes sense that they don't have as much money yet. Also, was there a closed-door, high-dollar fundraiser in a wine cave? Well, yes, there was such an event, but whether it was closed-door is debatable. We know there was a reporter present for at least part of the event, which is why we know about the wine and the crystal chandelier and all that stuff. Now, that reporter apparently was not present for the dinner portion of the event. So if Warren means it's a paid-to-attend thing, then yeah, it's closed door. But if she means it was completely closed off to the outside world and Buttigieg was telling secrets in a cave, well, probably not. Or at least, if he did, he told them over dinner, I guess? Okay, let's take a quick break and get into the next phase of this particular argument. Alright, listen up. If you've ever worried about your online privacy, like, you know, maybe somebody's looking at something you're doing on the internet, just saying you need ExpressVPN. It is a simple service that protects your online activity. With ExpressVPN, it's one click, you're protected, that's it. Works on your phone, tablet, laptop, whatever. Look, when you're on the free Wi-Fi at the coffee shop, folks, that Wi-Fi is not free. Somebody is snooping. So why take that chance when you can be sure that your private stuff stays private? 
With ExpressVPN, you can be sure. It protects you at home and on the go. And we have a deal for election ride home listeners. Go to tryexpressvpn.com slash ride. That is T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash R-I-D-E. And yes, that link is in the show notes at the top. So check out tryexpressvpn.com slash ride today to find out how you can protect your privacy and get three months free with a one-year package. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. All right, we're back. So we have set up this conflict where Warren started it, then Buttigieg responded. Then Warren talked about the wine cave. Then Buttigieg brought up the idea of purity tests. That's where I cut it off in the last segment. So let's pick up right there from that point and listen some more. If I pledge never to be in the company of a progressive Democratic donor, I couldn't be up here. Senator, your net worth is 100 times mine. Now, supposing that you went home feeling the holiday spirit, I know this isn't likely, but stay with me, and decided to go on to peatforamerica.com and give the maximum allowable by law, $2,800. Would that pollute my campaign because it came from a wealthy person? No, I would be glad to have that support. We need the support from everybody who is committed to helping us defeat Donald Trump. We would. We would like to bring in everyone, but obviously, Senator Warren, like to give you a chance to respond. I do not sell access to my time. I don't do call time Hold with millionaires second. and billionaires. Sorry, as of I when, don't Senator? Meet, I don't meet behind closed doors with big dollar donors. And look, I've taken one that ought to be an easy step for everyone here. I've said to anyone who wants to donate to me, if you want to donate to me, that's fine. But don't come around later expecting to be named ambassador, because that's what goes on in these high dollar fundraisers. I said no, and I asked everybody on this stage to join me. This ought to be an easy step. And here's the problem. If you can't stand up and take the steps that are relatively easy, can't stand up to the wealthy and well-connected when it's relatively easy when you're a candidate, then how can the American people believe you're going to stand up to the wealthy and well-connected when you're president and it's really hard? Judy. Senator, Judy. Uh, Senator uh, I've got to respond. Mr. Mayor, we're going to give you one more chance no to respond. to a donor, then you have no business running for office in the first place. But also, Senator, your presidential campaign right now, as we speak, is funded in part by money you transferred 
having raised it at those exact same big-ticket fundraisers you now denounce. Did it corrupt you, Senator? Of course not. So to denounce the same kind of fundraising guidelines that President Obama went by, that Speaker Pelosi goes by, that you yourself went by until not long ago in order to build the Democratic Party and build a campaign ready for the fight of our lives, these purity tests shrink the stakes of the most important election. Judy, we, th- we like to bring everyone in. We like to bring everyone in. All right, a minor teachable moment here in the How Campaigns Work Department. Buttigieg is correct when he says that the Warren campaign is funded in part by her previous campaigns for Senate. That's something we've covered on this show before. If you're a politician and you have leftover money from a previous campaign, you can transfer it into a new campaign account. And he is correct that some portion of that money did come from similar high-dollar donor events that Warren held when she was running for Senate. That was before Warren took this pledge to take only grassroots donations. Okay, now we're going to pick up one last time on this particular exchange and bring in a third candidate who'd been trying to get in there this whole time. That is Senator Amy Klobuchar. I want you to listen to her message here, which she repeated several times throughout the night. She points out her experience in writing and passing legislation. She has written a bunch of bills, many of them bipartisan, and many of which we've talked about on this show. One of her core arguments last night was that her specific experience there was important, it was bipartisan, and thus it made her electable. All right, so listen in. I did not come here to listen to this argument. I came here to make a case for progress, and I have never even been to a wine cave. I've been to the Wind Cave in South Dakota, which I suggest you go to. So what is making a case for progress about? That is what unites us up here instead of what divides us, which is campaign finance reform. That means passing a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. It means making the first bill we pass when I am president will be H.R. 1, which is the ethics reform passed in the House, which is currently sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk along with 400 bills. And if you don't think we can get this done, well, we can, but only if we win this election big. Not by arguing with each other, but by finding what unites us and getting this done. I came to make a case for progress. Okay, so now we sum up much of what we had from those three candidates last night. Buttigieg faced a lot of attacks. Now, that's likely because he is doing extremely well. He is the frontrunner in Iowa polls, and everybody wants to take him down a notch in Iowa. Warren was the primary candidate going after him. But we also saw a substantial argument from Klobuchar going after him as well, and one from Steyer. And while we're at it, I just want to mention Klobuchar had a pretty good night. She had a ton of talk time, and she kept hammering home various points about electability. All right, moving on. In our next clip, moderator Tim Alberta asked Tom Steyer about a man named Kyle, who he said was, quote, a remarkable young adult with significant disabilities, end quote. Kyle works at a pizza parlor. And Alberta asked what Steyer would do to provide government support, integration in communities, jobs, and other support for people like Kyle. Steyer gave his answer. Then Alberta went to the other end of the row of podiums and offered the same question to Yang. 
Let's listen to that. Thank you, thank you. Mr. Yang, I didn't hear a specific answer from Mr. Steyer. Can you outline specific steps that the government should take to help integrate these young people into the workforce and into their local communities? I would love it. Uh, I have a son with special needs. And to me, special needs is the new normal in this country. How many of you all have a family member or a friend or a neighbor with special needs or autism? If you look around, most hands went up. The fact is right now we have to do more for Kyle. Special needs children are going to become special needs adults in many cases. And here's the challenge. We go to employers and say, hey, this special needs person can be a contributor in your workplace, which may be correct, but that's not the point. We have to stop confusing economic value and human value. We have to be able to say to our kids and Kyle that you have intrinsic value because you're an American and you're a human being. We're going to put a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month in everyone's hands, which is going to help families around the country adapt. And then we're going to take this burden off of the communities and off of the schools who do not have the resources to support kids like my son you, and make Yang. it a federal priority, not a local one. So they're not robbing Peter to pay Paul. Thank you, Mr. Yang. We have to move this? on. Judy. No, no, no. So look, not only is this a good answer from a candidate who understands special needs kids, but it's also a notable example of how Yang worked his answers during the night. He pivoted repeatedly toward his core policies. He managed to take just one minute to give both a meaningful response to the question and work in one of his signature policies, the Freedom Dividend, also known as a universal basic income. So I think that's the takeaway of the night about Yang's performance. He had a kind of message discipline that kept him on target with policy, but also gave him room to make jokes and be a human being. Even though Yang was, again, right at the bottom of the overall talk time rankings, he did technically get more time than ever. And again, he made that time work for him. I should also note, Warren did jump in after Yang. And Warren was a teacher for special needs kids. So her perspective is valuable here too, though I'm trying to get to more candidates with these clips. So again, watch the whole debate if you want the whole debate. Let's move along. All right, next up, let's listen to former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders. As usual, they got into a debate over health care. This came late in the evening. But it gets to something I haven't mentioned yet, which is that Biden had a really good night. Now, that good night is relative to other debate performances this year, but it still matters. If you just tuned in to this debate and none of the prior ones, you would see Biden right there delivering a solid performance and standing in the middle of the stage because, as usual, he still has the best polling numbers. He, like Buttigieg and Klobuchar, offered relatively moderate proposals within the field on that stage and he seemed totally willing to mix it up with other candidates. I have a clip that illustrates that coming up. All right, so the moderator asked Sanders what he would do if the Senate didn't pass a Medicare for All bill. And that's a realistic possibility given the likely makeup of the Senate after the 2020 election. Sanders responded by saying the healthcare system is so messed up right now, he thinks they would pass the bill. And beyond that, he used his time to explain what Medicare for All covers. It adds vision, dental, hearing aids, home health care. His point there was super consistent with what he has said before. So in that sense, Sanders had a pretty good night too. He stuck to his core message, delivered it consistently, and yeah, by the way, he was right there standing next to Biden because he is currently second in national polls. 
All right, now let's jump in for the rebuttal from Biden and a fair bit of back and forth. Thank you, Senator Sanders. Vice President Biden, I'd like to bring you in. You spent an awful lot of time 10 years ago trying to pass a bill far less ambitious than what Senator Sanders is talking about here. Is he being realistic? I don't think it is realistic, but let me explain why. I introduced a plan to build on Obamacare. It remind everybody, 20 million people got insurance, didn't have it before. All people with pre-existing conditions are able to be covered. That could go on. We didn't get all that we wanted. But now that it's been exposed, that taking it away has such dire consequences, I've added to the Obamacare plan the Biden initiative, which is a public option, Medicare, if you want to have Medicare, reducing significantly the price of drugs, deductibles, et cetera, by by underwriting the plan to a tune of about $750 billion, billion dollars and uh, making sure that we're able to cover everyone who is, in fact, able to be covered. Hey, put your hand down for a second, Bernie, okay? Just waving to you, Joe. I know, I know. Say it alone. I know. So look, it covers everybody. It's realistic. And most importantly, it lets you choose what you want. Here, you have 160 million people negotiated their health care plans with their employer, like many of you have. You may or may not like it. If you don't like it, you can move into the public option that I propose in my plan. But if you like it, you shouldn't have, Wall- you shouldn't have Washington dictating to you, you cannot keep the plan you have. Thank you, Vice President That's Biden. Fun- Senator Sanders, 45 seconds to respond. Under <laughs> Joe's plan, essentially, we retain the status Quote, that's not true. No, that is exactly right. true. And by, thank you. And by the way, Joe, under your plan, you know, you asked me how we're going to pay for it. Under your plan, I'll tell you how we're paying for it right now. The average worker in America, their family makes 60000 a year. That family is now paying $12,000 a year for health care, 20% of the income. Under Medicare for all, that family will be paying $1,200 a year because we're eliminating the profiteering of the drug companies and the insurance companies and ending this Byzantine and complex administration of thousands of separate health care plans. Senator Klobuchar, I'm going to come to you. My name was mentioned. I'm going to come to you for 45 seconds. 45 seconds for Vice President Biden. not interrupted here, all right? I'm going to interrupt now. It costs $30 trillion. Let's get that straight. $30 trillion over 10 years. Some say it costs $20 trillion. Some say it costs 40 The idea that you're going to be able to save that person making $60,000 a year on Medicare for all is absolutely preposterous. 16% of the American uh, public is on Medicare now, and everybody has a tax taken out of their paycheck now. Tell me, you're going to add 84% more, and there's not going to be higher taxes? At least before he was honest about it. Oh, Joe. It's going to increase personal taxes. They're going to be- That's Medi- right. We are going to increase personal taxes. Okay. But we're eliminating premiums. We're eliminating co-payments. We're eliminating deductibles. We're eliminating all out-of-pocket expenses. And no family in America will spend more than $200 a year on prescription drugs. Our plan will save the average work of four Senator Klobuchar, we'd like to hear from you. Senator Klobuchar, pay premiums or co-payments. First time I did this. Okay, that's true. All right, to wrap up the recap coverage, I do want to point out a few more factors. There were a bunch of topics last night that came up that I just didn't cover in this recap. Those included 
reparations, China, Afghanistan, the murder of transgender women of color, the thing about Biden maybe serving just one term, age, race, free college, thorium reactors, Hong Kong, relocation due to climate change, and probably some more that I'm forgetting. As someone who has covered every DNC primary debate in detail, this one stuck out. It had the fewest people on stage, it covered the most ground in terms of questions and policy, and we saw so many candidates stick so artfully to their core messages. Klobuchar did it, Biden did it, Yang did it, Buttigieg did it, basically everybody has gotten very good at pivoting back to their core thing. Now, I don't know what January's debate will bring, but when it comes, my guess is the field will be slightly smaller, and all of this will be even more intense because of that, but also because all of these candidates now know each other and they know how to debate one another very well. So stay tuned for that. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, here is the schedule for the next couple of weeks for this podcast. I am taking all of next week off. Woohoo! However, there is a show on Monday and one on Friday. Both of them are pre-recorded. The Monday show is about primaries and caucuses, how they came about and how they work. Then Friday is an interview with a campaign staffer talking primarily about what it's like to be working on a campaign on the ground in Iowa. That is a nice, long interview, and I think you're going to enjoy both shows. Then the following week, I am off on Monday through Wednesday. So as always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all on January 2nd.